You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 28 minutes to 10 o'clock. Let's move on to other things, other matters that will educate us and make us clever people. And uh, we are satisfying your curiosity about the world in which we live. The Naked Scientist is with us on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Good morning to you, Chris. Welcome. Morning, Reggie. Thank you. Now, this is a global debate, isn't it? I mean, here in South Africa, the different schools of thought on uh, the effects of uh, uh, marijuana and its medical use or medical benefits. There's some lobbying for it to be recognized. What's the latest? What do you have for us? Well, Yes, you're right, that this is a contentious issue. On the one hand, there are people who have various conditions, including pain, people who have had strokes or have um, neuromuscular problems, and they say they get great relief from the use of marijuana. There are other groups that say this is an illegal drug and people shouldn't be having to self-medicate with it. We should have other ways of, of dealing with their problems. What would be really rather good is if we had a way of exploiting the beneficial effects of marijuana without having to have the negative side effects. It can cause memory problems, it can cause mood problems, it can cause dependence problems in some people. Uh, And that's really the thrust of this story which has emerged this week. There's a a group of researchers at the University of East Anglia in the UK, Mm -hmm. Peter McCormick and his colleagues, and they've published this paper in the journal PLOS One where they have managed to find a way of getting just the pain-killing effects of, of cannabis but without the negative side effects and the mood-altering effects. And the way they've done it is that actually serendipitously they discovered that when you add the active chemical in marijuana, this is a chemical called THC or tetrahydrocannabinol, if you take this into the body, when it goes to the brain, it binds onto what are called receptors, which are docking stations for that chemical on brain cells, but it then exerts its effects through another nerve transmitter chemical called serotonin and they have found the receptor that it uses to talk to other nerve cells downstream of this cannabis effect and they have demonstrated that you can make a small molecule that you can inject into the brain of mice just to prove the principle which stops this interaction with serotonin and they get all of the pain-killing effects but they don't get any of the mood-altering or negative side effects so they're saying yes we we have demonstrated this works now what we could do is to begin to design a chemical that will work in the way that our test chemical does and that means we we potentially are on the road to being able to help people get benefits of marijuana and not the downsides Hmm, okay. Uh, our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. We are taking your SMSs as well on 31702 and 31567. Let's go to Jennifer in Fishhook. Good morning. Good morning, Reedy. Good morning, Chris. Chris, um, okay, uh, this is a scenario. Okay, we have, we have for example, a 60-meter swimming pool, for argument's sake, and we have two swimmers. And they both complete a length in one minute, right? Which means they're swimming at one meter per second, both of them. Mm-hmm. But one of the swimmers is really tall, is two meters tall, and the other swimmer is one and a half meters tall. So the one swimmer is kind of doing what? Kind of like 20 body lengths, and the other one is doing 30 body lengths. But they're swimming at the same speed. But if you were to take those two swimmers out of the swimming pool, and put them into a river that is flowing at one meter per second and put them next to each other and have them swim, would they still be swimming at the same speed or would the shorter person be going faster because the longer person has the advantage of body length? 
Right, yeah, interesting mm. question. Relative to the bottom of the swimming pool, regardless of how long they are, they are both swimming along at the same speed. That's what our measurements uh, have shown. Now, yeah. the difference between the swimming pool, where the water is static, pretty much, and the river, is oh. that the river is flowing. The flowing water exerts an effect on the person by exerting drag. In other words, the interaction between the water and the surface of the person applies a force onto the person in the direction the river is flowing, holding them back. Yeah. The surface area that the person has in contact with the flowing water is going to be the decider as to how much drag they feel. Something very big is going to feel more drag because it's in contact with more moving water going the other way than something much smaller. So I would predict that the, the longer person is going to feel more drag, more resistance through the water, and therefore they're going to have a harder time moving fast through the water than the shorter person. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the area that's interesting here is the, is the boat analogy, because the top speed of a boat is the square root of the length of the hull, I'm thinking feet, and that's the speed in knots, um, the maximum speed that it can do. So a longer boat will travel faster through water when it's powered than a shorter one. But at the same time, the drag forces are still going to be there. And so a long boat's going to feel a, a drag um, in the same way that your shorter person is. So I think, this, I think the, the shorter swimmer will probably come off better in the flowing river. Thank you. It was a very interesting the, question. The water length line or, or just the drag? Because I, I kind of seem to think that it's because of the water length. I, I think because the person has more skin in contact with the water and therefore more drag. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Thank Jennifer. You. I can see she thought very hard about this. Thank you. Uh, John, Gerard and Ernest, I see you coming to you in a moment. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And we're taking your calls on 021-446-0567 or double one double eight three oh seven oh two. Gerard in Durbanville. Good morning. Good morning, really. Morning, Chris. Chris, with this uh, refugee... Um, situation developing on the border of Haiti. Tell me, why is the cholera virus so difficult to kill and get rid of? Why is cholera difficult to kill? Good morning. Yep. Well, well, cholera is actually not a virus, but uh, it's a microbacterium. It's a micro... I'll try that again. Cholera is a microbe. It's a bacterium. And this, this bacterium, in fact, lives in the sea. If you look at the organisms that inhabit the sea, you find things called plankton, and these are microorganisms, and they can be zooplankton, which are little animals, or phytoplankton, little plants. The zooplankton, the little animals, one particular type of them is called a coccolithophore, and they're microscopic, and they have a little calcium shell. They, they inhabit this sort of hard outer coat with the soft bits inside. In those organisms, they have a little intestine, and living in their intestines are... Vibrio cholerae, which are the bugs which cause cholera. How does that account for cholera? Well, whenever there is flooding, you get incursion of seawater and these organisms into water on land. When they get into water, they get into the drinking water. If they are not filtered, these coccolithophores, out of the drinking water and people get them in their body, the cholera comes out of those and gets into people's intestines and when it gets into us, it then triggers this incredibly powerful diarrhoea. It's because the, the organism makes, as a virulence factor, something which activates very powerfully a, a signal in the intestinal cells and makes the absorbing process that normally pulls liquid out of the intestine and puts it into your bloodstream, it makes that run backwards. It's 
rather like running an engine backwards and it starts pumping fluid into the intestine rather than getting it out. So you, predictably you, you can probably guess what happens and people can lose litres and litres of fluid from their body every hour and that's why mm. it's so deadly. But once it's established in a community, because a person who is carrying cholera and sheds cholera is so infectious, they're shedding so many of these bacteria, if the stuff that comes out of their body isn't properly dealt with and it gets back into the local water supply, then other people get infected and then other people get infected and you have a big outbreak. Usually when you have refugee crises and things, one of the things that's happening is that you've got a lot of people in one place, you've got very poor sanitation, very poor access to clean water and all it takes is the uh, initiation of a cholera uh, case and then everything goes down because very soon everyone starts to catch it. And with the Haiti situation after the earthquake, mm. they've actually now done genetic typing of the cholera bug that turned up there. And ironically, it, it wasn't homegrown cholera. It came in in the intestine of somebody who came to help from overseas, the people of Haiti, when they oh. had their earthquake. Uh, and so it was somebody who obviously had picked up cholera somewhere else brought it with them and then their own poor hygiene habits meant and, and coupled with the, the the situation and the disaster no, meant no, that no. it caused an outbreak oh, it's very tragic indeed uh, Njabula wants to know via sms is there a difference between a fresh water and seawater fish and can either survive in each other's environment if swapped well, there is certainly a difference, and if you just took a fish out of the ocean and plonked it in cold water, fresh water in a fish tank in your living room, and vice versa, they would not survive. Um, there are, however, fish that do have the ability to live in both places. I'm thinking of, for example, salmon. Salmon are born in a river, they swim down the river to the sea, they then inhabit the sea for a while, and they use the Earth's magnetic field to navigate by to find their way back to the very same place where they themselves were born to reproduce. It's one of those amazing feats of nature. But they have to make some quite considerable changes to their physiology in order to compensate for that journey. Because when you're in fresh water, the problem you have is that mm -hmm. your body has more concentrated blood in it than the outside world. So the water in the outside world tries to move from an area where there's lots of water in the river into your body and make your body swell up. And this is why if you put fruits and vegetables in a bowl of water, they'll go stiff that this is because fresh water is moving into the more concentrated salts inside the fruits and vegetables. It's the same thing. And in a fish, the gills, where the water flows very close to the animal's blood, is the place where most of this water exchange tries to happen. In the ocean, the reverse is true. The outside world, the water, is incredibly salty, much, much, much saltier than the flesh and the blood of the fish. So if it doesn't take steps to compensate, the water in its body gets drawn out and it gets dehydrated. You can do this yourself in your kitchen. If you make a really salty solution and put some slabs of potato in it, the potato it will start off nice and stiff and rigid and after a couple of hours it will be all floppy because the water has been pulled out of the potato and all the cells have gone floppy. Now, fish can compensate like salmon for that and they do it by adjusting their physiology and how they cope with moving water in and out of their body because, and because they have the ability to do that, they can survive. Most animals have not evolved to do that. They don't have to live in both environments, so they can't, and they would die because their body would suffer an osmotic shock. John in Strand. Good morning. Morning, good morning, Chris. Um, Chris, because well, I'm constantly reading that you know the cells in the body regenerate. Um, so my question is really why, if there's all this regeneration going on, um, why do we get old and eventually 
die. That's a good one, this one, and people have been struggling with this question for years. I mean, many people have grown old trying to solve the problem. There's an interesting paper, actually, that's come out this week. It's in the journal Nature Medicine. I spoke to the guy who published it, Saul Valeda, from University of California, San Francisco. He was part of the team last year who did the experiment where they did parabiosis. I don't know if you saw this in the news, where a young mouse was connected by its circulation to an old mouse, and they found that the old mouse gener- became much younger. Effectively, it was rejuvenated by having the blood of the younger mouse flowing through it. The young mouse, on the other hand, paid a price because the, old, the younger mouse got a lot older through doing this. In this new paper this week, they've actually homed in on one of the chemicals that seems to be involved in doing this, and it's a chemical called beta 2 microglobulin, or B2M. And this is an important part of our immune system. It's how we fight off foreign infections, but it also has a role to play in tissues and tissue regeneration and in their experiments they added this to the blood of mice and they were able to show that the stem cells that regenerate various tissues including the brain when you increase the level of this stuff either in the brain or in the blood stem cells stop dividing and aging is accelerated the good news is that when they removed this stuff from the body aging was slowed down so it looks like it's a, perhaps a necessary evil that we have various chemicals that help to control how our tissues behave and when they're there in youth they keep our tissues in check as we get older when we could do with a bit more stem cell action to offset some of the damage and deleterious effects of our daily life unfortunately these sort of breaks on how our cells and tissues work accelerate the aging process we don't know why we age mm. yet but this is certainly one insight into how we might be able to slow the process down Thank you very much, John. Fascinating question. Um, and speaking of uh, aging and growth, uh, is it Hein in Pretoria? You've got a question about growth homo- hormones. Yes. Hi there. Hi there, Chris. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to speak quite fast. There are two growth or two hormone peptides that I'm interested in. It's called GHRP6 and GHRP2 hexamelin and CJC1295. Now, those are amino acids, according to what I've read. But they bind to the natural growth hormone in the maturity gland of humans and I presume rats and all those type of things. Now what I want to know, is it worth using rather the peptides than the growth hormone itself? Because um, what I read, it's, you, you get a lot less side effects from the peptides than you do from natural or not natural from synthetic growth hormone use. But are the effects the same and is it really worth using it? Right. Well, first of all, what is growth hormone? Well, growth hormone is a chemical which is made by your pituitary gland, made by your anterior pituitary gland, in response to a a, a trigger which comes from your brain, the hypothalamus, and it's absolutely critical for life. People who lack growth hormone can end up very, very unwell. People who have a, a lack of growth hormone don't grow properly as kiddies, and when they're older, they can end up with their, their various tissues not working as well as they should. So one thing that you can do for younger people to make sure they achieve the right stature is you give them doses of artificial growth hormone. In the old days, they actually used to use human growth hormone extracted from human pituitary glands. Um, there are some conditions where you have too much growth hormone, and this can produce gigantism, People grow too much if, if the overproduction occurs during childhood. Or you can get a condition called acromegaly, where certain tissues continue to grow and develop throughout life and can respond to growth hormone uh, in adulthood. 
you should never take these things unless you need them because they have powerful effects on all of your tissues and pretty much every cell in your body has receptors for growth hormone and can respond to it. It increases sugar levels, it will increase blood pressure, it can have other consequences beyond just making things grow. So it's very important to make sure that the, this is used appropriately Inappropriate use could lead to you having hypertension. It can use to lead, lead to problems with other um, chemical signals in the body, skin problems, skin changes, and, as I say, things like um, big hands and feet, acromegaly. Ernst in Davidson. Good morning. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? Fine. Welcome. Your question? Yes, ma'am. Uh, sorry, sir. Uh, I have a question here regarding the speed. Speed off? So, Yes, what happens because uh, once we went for a uh, defensive driving, so we were arguing about the speed, where, whereby we were told that I, I was asking if I'm driving a 1984 car with someone who's driving a recent car, they said the speed, if I were drive, both driving is 80, it's likely that the one that uh, is driving, who is driving the latest car won't be hit by the, the speed limit, by the speed trap or something. I just wanted to know is it true that the speed are not the same with different models? No, unfortunately, there's no immunity. Um, old or new cars get caught by speed traps. And the way speed traps work, usually, there's a number of different ways of doing this, but they usually use the radar uh, system. And either, either there's a fixed camera, which and there's one of them in that blinking tunnel on the on the I think it's the M1, isn't it, Joburg? It's always it's hiding around the corner. I always always nearly get caught by that one, but you always have to watch out for that. <laughs> but so you have a system where the camera fires a barrage of radio waves, radar signals. They bounce off of a car and they are reflected back to the camera. Now, when something is moving, then the waves that bounce off it arrive coming back at the camera slightly more stretched out because the object they're bouncing off of is moving away, so one wave pings off the car, then the next one that comes back is slightly further back than it should be, and the amount that it's stretched out is proportional to the speed of the vehicle. And so therefore you can work out how fast something is going away from you or coming towards you. That's how these radar guns work. And this is a phenomenon called the Doppler shift. And th there's, there's not really any requirement other than you have a surface that's reflective to these radio waves. More, more recent inventions include laser scanners that will also read number plates as well so that you don't even have to have a person standing there or even someone looking at the pictures. You can have something using this radar system to work out how fast things are and then it scans an entire picture looking for something that conforms to a number plate and then it reads the number plate. If you obscure your number plate, obviously they're going to have trouble catching you, but then they'll catch you for having a dodgy number plate, won't they? <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I was asking you because if maybe I was driving a 1984 car and someone is driving, will that have a difference in... No, there's absolutely no difference between old cars and new cars. They're both mm -hmm. going to reflect the radar waves back to the camera and it will see you. Okay, so <laughs> I think you're hoping for a different Sorry. answer there. Sorry. <laughs> Let's go to Devon in Benoni. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Okay, I have a question for the guest, right? Uh, I'm Hindu, and you see we have some days where we fast. We have months even where we fast, where we abstain from any meat or meat products. I even have relatives who are pure vegetarian because in Hinduism, you're not supposed to eat animal products. Now, I'm fasting, like, for this weekend, today, tomorrow, and I'm told that I'm not supposed to eat. There's three different food categories. Like, for example, garlic will make you angry or <laughs> aggravate you and bulbs. Um, and I think this is ancient, ancient tradition. So I'm trying to figure out now, 
and milk supposed to make you um, more conducive to meditation. And um, eggs, for example, makes you dull. So, like, I'm not eating eggs for, like today or any meat products for the next because apparently so you're really that's cheerful, dull. Then, you're not having any eggs. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you're cheerful because you're not having any eggs because they make yeah. you dull, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I don't know they whether laughed, so I, you know I'm religious and I love my religion. I love being Hindu or you know the philosophy and you know being I like it. But I don't get this whole um, you know should we be eating not not eating garlic because it aggravates the, the system or aggravates your mind, or makes you short-tempered, and eggs apparently make you dull, or make you dim. Like food and like mood, okay. Yeah, so food and mood summarises it beautifully. Is there any basis to that? Well, there certainly is some basis in the sense that people have done experiments, and they have shown that obviously people who are hungry are miserable, uh, because food is where we get energy. Food is where we also get the building blocks of some of the signals that the brain uses when it sends signals from one nerve cell to another. So if you deprive the brain of energy and you deprive the brain of some of these key ingredients it needs to make neurotransmitters, then yes, there are definitely mood consequences. Can we reinforce our mood positively in other ways? Yes, you can do that too. Anyone who's a caffeine freak like me and <laughs> cannot function in the morning without a decent <laughs> cup of coffee, uh, I know you're one of them, Reedy, uh, then we, are, we know only too well the mood-enhancing effects of things that we eat and drink because caffeine is a very, very powerful neurostimulant. It increases the level of various neurotransmitters and it also increases the level of adrenaline circulating in your bloodstream. So it has a pepping-up effect. Chocolate contains a lot of sugar. It contains a serotonin-like agent, which is a, a feel-good hormone in the brain, and also contains theobromine, which is another stimulant. Very bad for dogs. You can poison your dog with a single bar of chocolate, but mm. for humans, we're not susceptible to it, and it has a mood-boosting bo effect. So, yes, there are certainly plants, there are certainly things in the environment that have mood-altering effects and will affect your behaviour. Taken to the extreme as to whether you could generalise and say eggs do this, steak does that, and chilli does this, mm, probably less well-founded on evidence, but mm. certainly it's based on a principle that's true. I have a long email here, but I think what this person is asking is, if you are a bodybuilder, you've got these massive bulky muscles, and you hit by a bullet, does the bullet have the same effect as it would have on somebody who's not as muscular? Well, we did an experiment on the Naked Scientist because we got this email from somebody who said, how fat would I have to be to stop a bullet with my beer gut? <laughs> and so we actually did the experiment. We went to the Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge University and we made a big long tube of gelatin because gelatin is very analogous to body flab. So you can use gelatin. Instead of having to shoot a real person, you just shoot a tube of gelatin. We took pictures at thousands of frames a second of the bullet going through the gelatin so we could work out how much or by how much each unit length of gelatin slows down the path of the bullet, so we could extrapolate that to how flabby someone would have to be to stop a bullet. And what we found in our experiment is that you could stop a bullet from a Kalashnikov fired at close range if you had a, be a beer belly, which was 80 centimetres of fat out in front of you. So the reality is that uh, most people would be dead from cholesterol poisoning a very long time before mm. they got anywhere near a bullet. So if you need that much flab, you will not really be much protected by having a more muscular body from a bullet than someone who is less muscular. Most of the damage done by a bullet coming in isn't that it hits you, it's the huge pressure wave that hits you. The bullet's a, a tiny object, yes, but mm. it's going incredibly fast, so it has massive momentum. When it hits your body, it imparts all that energy to your tissues, and a shock wave goes through your tissues, 
ripping tissues to pieces, and that's why the exit wound is always a lot bigger than the entry wound, and it's right. that shock wave that can damage tissues so severely, and therefore I don't think being really muscular is going to be a very good defence against something that just has that much energy, to be honest. Thank you, Chris. Well, we'll see you again next week. I'm looking forward to it already. Thanks, Reedy. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we are going to podcast this conversation with the Naked Scientist, of course. When we return, though, speaking of next week, I'm going to give you details about the event that we're hosting here with Dr. Eve. We really want you to come through.